Well, hey everyone, this is Cameron, and welcome to another episode of the Door of Hope Leadership Podcast, which just exists to get conversations that we hope are helpful in the hands of our leaders, uh, now at two churches, Door of Hope Northeast and Southeast. Um, and if you are not a leader, we are stoked that you're listening to this as well. We hope you find it encouraging and helpful. Um, I am Cameron Hager. I am now uh, lead pastor over at the, the new church plant, Door of Hope Northeast. And who am I joined by right now? I'm not sure. That's a great question, Cam. Uh, this is Pip Craighead. I'm the pastor of communications and community groups at Door of Hope Southeast. Yeah. So I essentially, Cam actually taught me his role, kind of walked me through his role when he was pastor of community groups at Southeast. And I kind of then usurped that position. <laughs> Booted me out. Yeah. Made him start his own church. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's a real pleasure to be here, and Cam has been such a blessing to me as I've stepped into this role. So I'm excited to be here on the uh, the legendary Door of Hope Leadership Podcast. Legendary. Um, well, what we're going to talk about today was something that originated back at our community group leader training in January. Uh, and we usually when we do little breakout trainings and cover specific subjects, we have the goal to pick them back up for one of these podcasts. And uh, we're just now getting to it. Um, we also felt like this was even a, maybe a more timely time to, to bring up the subject, which is the relationship between church or our discipleship to Jesus and politics. Um, and just to preface it, I would just note that it feels like the last few years have just been a particularly intense political season uh, in America, at least. Um, and when things get intense in that way, churches and, and, and our community groups, our small groups, our, our church family relationships, sadly, can become places of real intensity or bitterness or division. Uh, and one of the things that we can do if we're in positions of leadership is to try to help direct the conversation back to the words and actions and example of Jesus. Um, in, in, in Jesus's words, and even in those of the other biblical authors, um, we can find tools to clarify what is binding for all Christians and where there is freedom to disagree in sort of Holy Spirit, hopefully guided wisdom. And so we just want to say from the get go, we know, I feel like we say this every time, and it's always true. We're going to only scratch the surface of what is a really complicated, complex conversation um, and so if, if you feel like we gave some aspect of this the short, a short changing, um, we're sorry. Uh, but we hope this at least gets the conversation started uh, for further study, further discussion, further action. Um, yeah, so that's it by way of intro. I, I say we turn it over to Pip uh, for starters. Great. Um, so I'm just going to give you a little voting guide and I'm going to walk <laughs> you through <laughs> uh, completely the, uh, the opposite of where we're actually headed towards in this conversation. Uh, so let's, let's start off, let's kind of talk about some basic biblical principles to help uh, kind of orient us in terms of how we talk about politics. And it's, uh, we're going to turn to the words of Jesus in Mark 12, verse 13 through, th uh, through 17. And this is a Jesus's conversation with Pharisees and Herodians, and I think it's really it's one of the things so interesting here is that this is within a specific political context, and it can remind us as we talk about this context, it can remind us the ways that 
different times, different periods, they all have their own kind of unique context within which we, we have these conversations. I think the danger sometimes in America is we kind of view our context as the context for having conversations. We forget the broader span of history that we're yeah. in and that there have been a variety of like the current kind of left-right uh, divide is a particular divide in a particular place in time and we're going to talk about a, a different place in time and hopefully that gives us some some perspective on how we actually are to view our political uh, arena. So the Herodians uh, supported the Herods which uh, which were the Roman uh kind of the kings during the Roman occupation, while the Pharisees begrudged Rome's occupation of Jerusalem. So Jesus is having a conversation with them, and they ask him, uh, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But he, and this is Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So I just want to jump in and say, so to, to connect what you said about the two groups, so you've got the Pharisees who are in asking this question are hoping Jesus is going to say, don't pay your taxes because we want to get Roman oppression out of here. We need our overlords out of the place. Um, the Herodians are going to be hope, very hopeful that Jesus is going to say, pay your taxes, you know, be a good citizen, just accept the new normal that's yeah. here. Um, so what's so significant about Jesus' response here? Yeah, I mean, really, it's a gotcha moment. They're, they're, they're setting it up where like, well, if you say this, I mean, there's a similar thing when there's a question about... Uh, I believe Jesus asked them a question about John the Baptist, uh, which is just kind of one of those situations where if you say X, then there's a there's consequences of that. Like, oh, Jesus is a, as a rabble rouser. If you say Y, then there's consequences of that. Oh, Jesus is a sellout to the government uh, in people's perception. And here, Jesus just neatly sidesteps both of those by literally just getting a coin. And I think it's interesting. To, he says, you know, bring me a denarius, which means that, you know, these people have this this coinage they're carrying around with them, which even on the coin itself represents this government system, which they are both under, which clearly they are, they are both under. So, mm-hmm. um, and then there's Caesar. And I mean, it's, I'm always blown away when I read this. The fact that it is still Jesus' solution here is still shocking. It's still kind of like, oh, it's just, it's brilliant and it's creative and it's, it's sobering. I mean, it's kind of like a reality check. All of which is to say that, okay, so there's almost there's a sense in which this is the government you're under, so honor the government, and at the same time, everything you have and are belongs to God, mm. so honor God. Um, and there's three kind of out principles which, uh, which emerge from this interaction, and these are taken from a Mark Dever sermon. One is Christians should be good citizens. So the Roman state it's, was pagan. It was not by any stretch of the imagination a Judeo-Christian state. And yet it was a legitimate state. And Christians, as citizens of the kingdom of God, ought to be good citizens and neighbors in, which, in the context in which God has currently placed them. So there's more about this. Paul develops this in Romans 13, and Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 2. Uh, we're also urged in Timothy to pray for kings and rulers that they might wa- rule wisely and establish environments conducive to gospel ministry. So we're supposed to be good citizens. 
secondly, Christians are international. So Jesus doesn't require his followers simply to submit to governments that are tried to the one true God of Israel. Which is to say, uh, when people, if so this puts in a context in which if people are going to say to us like, hey, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to honor the government because the government doesn't honor God. That's not an option we're given because the Roman government clearly did not honor no. God. And, and, you know, the, some of the, the New Testament epistles are written in the context of a government actively persecuting Christians. And yet still, Paul says and Peter says to honor the government, to pray for those in power. Mm-hmm. So uh, the gospel is to go out to every tribe, tongue, nation and people. Uh, but the new covenant, that's the covenant that Christians have uh, in, in Christ, is not a national government. Uh, it's, and so Christians go out all throughout the earth to all sorts of different nation, nations, and wherever they are, uh, the kinds of human governments they find themselves in, and the varieties of different citizenships they find them in, one, we remember first and foremost our citizenship in the kingdom of God, and we honor the government um, which, we're, which we're under in that particular context. And Cam, do you want to say the third one here? Sure, sure. So the third point we could draw from this is that Christians, though though these first two points are absolutely true, they are finally accountable to God and his kingdom specifically. So Jesus is saying that certain things do belong to Caesar, like in this case, your, your taxes, but certain things belong to God. And, and by certain things, it really means like yourself. What do you owe to God? Everything. Uh, so we are to trust Christ in every area of life. And that needs to lead to comprehensive obedience in every area of life. And if, if that's true, uh, then it's, it's really clear that our obedience or duty to human authorities is limited. Like there, there will be times when what our government asks us to do is in clear and direct and significant conflict with what God has asked us to do. And when, when God's kingdom and human kingdoms come into conflict, we side with God. And so you could check out Acts 4, Acts 5, uh, even early Exodus. Um, This is a a, a well-developed theme throughout the whole Bible. Um, And really, it points us to a larger theme in the New Testament, that the day-to-day life of the church is primarily where Christians serve and work for good. And so government and political engagement alone will not accomplish what Jesus has called us to do. So um, this gets complicated, but the point is here. Our main avenue for changing the world is not through politics. Mm -hmm. And our main obedience is not to our human and earthly governments. And these are radically important for us to understand. We are called to be citizens of Jesus' kingdom first, to pledge our allegiance to him as king first. Um, So uh, I don't want to spin around in circles on this for too long. Anything to add to that point? I think it's it's beautiful how in some sense it's counterintuitive because we almost kind of want... To you know, there's a sense of well, other messiahs, other people who claim to be messiah at Jesus' time. You know, they were they led kind of earthly rebellions, earthly revolt, uh, revolts, as it were. And Jesus, I just love how counterintuitive this is. It says, you know, he's calling us to submit everything to him. Our main allegiances, like our all encompassing allegiances to him, and yet within that, that doesn't mean that so rise up, you know, grab weapons and take care of business. Uh, instead, he calls us to serve our government, the government we're under, and serve people around us, love one another in a way that is actually honoring God. And so I think it's beautiful, too. It's not like a slavish kind of fearful yeah. uh, government obedience because I'm scared that the government's going to punish me. Uh, or 
kind of like a fear of man kind of thing. It's really like, oh, I'm going to honor God. And in those situations where it comes into conflict, like you said, uh, obviously God God is the one we're honoring ultimately. And mm-hmm. we honor government in order to honor God. So obviously primary allegiance is to God. And we'll, we'll talk more about those kind of exceptions yeah. a little bit later in the podcast. But yeah, I also think it's, you know, it's, I feel like one of the kind of most basic principles takeaway here is like, oh, so pay your taxes. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think yeah. it's instructive to think about, oh, this is Rome, like, they were doing some pretty terrible things and they had like explicitly pagan, uh, you know, worship tied in with their government. And Jesus doesn't call them to withhold taxes or withhold, yeah. you know, service in the areas in which government is, uh, in, until the government cleans up its act. Right. Uh, which I think is instructive because there's plenty of stuff we can look at our government or other national governments, which is like, oh, that's immoral or that's questionable. Uh, but that doesn't mean we get the right to opt out. Yeah. Uh, nor does it mean we get the right, does, nor does it mean we endorse it either. Right. Uh, so paying taxes is not endorsement of the government's practices or, you know, the, the sins that I, I think are endemic to every human government. Yeah. So these are these are a few principles we hope um, y- you can see are there in Jesus's words and actions here in Mark. Um, hopefully, every Christian would would look at this passage and, and 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 draw something like these conclusions. Maybe there are more conclusions we could draw as well. Um, but now we're going to shift our attention from sort of these basic biblical principles to the stuff that just makes it more complicated. So if, if we could say, okay, most of us are going to agree with what's been said so far. Christians should be good citizens, respect the state. Christians are international, um, not tied to any one particular localized government. And Christians are finally accountable to God and his kingdom above all else. What do we do? And, what, and why specifically does it get so messy and complicated when we actually start trying to apply um, our faith in the political arena? And so we thought it'd be helpful to kind of have three conversations that highlight uh, different approaches um, that help explain why it's so difficult. Uh, A, to give you tools to make your own sort of political decisions as a disciple of Jesus. But secondarily, hopefully to have grace for people who arrive at different conclusions than you and to to give you a grid for understanding how they may have wound up there um, and how we can pursue unity amidst those things. So first, the first conversation is this. I want to talk about the competing, what we might call cultural approaches for political engagement. So the Bible gives general principles, but but actually very few specifics on how Christians should engage broader culture and politics. Uh, the events and even the writing of the New Testament, for example, we've already mentioned this. They took place under the oppressive rule of Roman emperors like Tiberius Caesar and Claudius and Nero and all these sort of weird, dangerous antagonistic characters. There's no direct teaching in the Bible for how to participate in a representative government or how to wield the voting power we currently possess. Like the, living in a democratic republic like ours is totally off the radar of the biblical authors. So we have to fill in some, fill in some gaps and, and make some assumptions and, and do our best to try to take what principles we can and apply them in our really unique historical situation. Um, so every believer is going to have to come to conclusions about how to do this. But there, there are a few patterns that have emerged, and I just want to um, highlight a few that each seem to capture part of the biblical heart. So first, there's the Anabaptist tradition, which, for example, focuses on the church being a counterculture. 
Uh, it's going to emphasize that the kingdom of God stands in opposition to the kingdoms of this world, which is very true, and thus usually encourages separation from and non-participation in politics, and really just trying to model the gospel kingdom values through establishing an alternative culture. So um, these are going to be folks who, in some of the more extreme forms, say we will absolutely, we will never vote because like, we, we believe that's some kind of unhelpful participation or cosign with the broader culture, and we're called to stand in counter counterculture to that. Um, secondarily, you've got many streams of the reform tradition that focus on what you might call cultural transformation. So they would say, no, what our job is to do is not to be a separate counterculture, but it's to try to come in and shape culture and society by participating in it to reflect the gospel and kingdom values, including through politics. So we're really going to put our votes to work to try to see Christian values worked out uh, because we believe they're where true justice and true wisdom and true righteousness and, and ultimately the common good of our neighbors is to be found. Um, a third you might call the liberal or mainline tradition, which is going to try to focus on the basic compatibility between Christianity and the surrounding culture. So they're often going to believe that God is working redemptively already within cultural movements that really have nothing explicitly to do with Christianity. And they're going to try to just, you know, come alongside those, encourage those for the common good. And we could go on. There are many other approaches. Again, this is simplistic, but the point for now is that biblical cases can be made for at least, I, I hope we could see some elements of each of these. Um, and, and the question of how a Christian should participate in 21st century American politics is not a neat and tidy one. Um, so as, as you maybe find yourself leaning towards one or the other of these, I uh, hope you can at least maybe have a little bit of grace and patience for people who are, are picking up on another biblical theme and it's causing them to lean maybe more heavily into a different one. Yeah, and so uh, at, at adding another kind of lens through which to view things, uh, there's a an relative, actually I forget exactly when it was published, but relatively recent book, there's certainly a newer edition of it, called The Three Languages of Politics by Arnold Kling, uh, which is, man, Kling, that is a great name. Uh, <laughs> So he makes the case that the that in modern Western politics there are three main uh, three major political perspectives, uh, which are like tribes speaking fundamentally different languages, and those are, and again this is I should probably clarify you know this is a rough kind of heuristic for for viewing things this is not the perfect lens but I think it's very it's very useful and helpful and um, so progressivism conservatism and libertarianism. Uh, and because each of these little tribe, these these separate tribes, speaks a different language, and the language that they use, one tribe uses, doesn't connect with the others, and they end up kind of speaking past one another. Uh, so political discussions do not lead to agreement or even understanding, but it, they rather they serve to increase polarization. Uh, people make points, and instead of like convincing people on the other side or finding it winsome, it just kind of aggravates both sides, and they kind yeah. of get deeper entrenched. Uh, so, in, in essence, they serve to, he says, they serve to close the minds of people on one's own side. So, let, let, I'll kind of uh, unpack those. So, progressivism, and, and again, these are, these are rough, uh, kind of rough evaluations. Sorry, there's, there's nuance here, which is, not, which is neglected, but I think this is still useful and helpful. Progressives tend to speak the language of oppressor versus oppressed. 
holding that groups or classes of people intrinsically fall into one of those categories. According to Kling, they would be, unli they would be likely to say something like this. My heroes are people who have st stood up for the underprivileged. The people I cannot stand are the people who are indifferent to the oppression of women, minorities, and the poor. Secondly, conservatism. Conservatives usually speak the language of civilization versus barbarism, describing issues in terms of what will protect civilization and defend against barbarism. So they might say something like this, according to Kling. My heroes are people who have stood up for Western values. The people I cannot stand are the people who are indifferent to the assault on the moral virtues and traditions that are the foundation of our civilization. And then lastly, libertarianism. So libertarianism uh, tends to see things in terms of an axis of uh, liberty and coercion. So often focusing on government's illegitimate restriction of individual agency. So according to Kling, they would say, my heroes are the people who have stood up for individual rights. The people I cannot stand are the people who are indifferent to government taking away people's ability to make their own choices. Mm. So those, those fundamental languages enable and disable people to communicate about politics uh, in, a, in a meaningful, uh, winsome manner. So I think uh, you know, each of those, those uh, three uh, approaches there, those actually do resonate with some biblical truth, with some things that we would agree with. Uh, you know, when we're talking about oppressed and oppressed, the Bible speaks so much about uh, the evils of oppression, the oppression of the poor. Uh, clearly, I mean, you look at the last 200 years and racial oppression is an issue which should be on the minds and hearts and something that every Christian cares about, that denounce it as evil. Uh, so conservatism, speaking of civilization and barbarism, the Bible clearly speaks of the importance of values and like and the integrity of uh, institutions such as the family and uh, you know even as we're talking about government uh, we're talking about Romans thirteen and you know respect respect for government and uh, respect for those institutions so clearly there's something to that that is really important and moral virtues are extremely important. Lastly, libertarianism uh, we would you know as Christians we would denounce. Uh, coercion uh immoral coercion on the behalf on the part of the government you know we look back at say uh uh the conquistadors coming into uh, the new world and forcing people to uh or some of them forcing people to convert by the sword and we absolutely denounce that as unlawful coercion and also i think especially in america there is that that liberty coercion kind of narrative that lies at the heart of our nation's kind of founding yeah. founding narrative near and dear yep so uh i think one it's super interesting to th when you apply that those categories to conversations it produces a lot of insight even if you just hear a news item uh and you just kind of run it through the different narratives and you can see how it works in different people's minds one person hears a story of injustice, and their immediate thought is, "This is wrong. This is an act. You know, this is the oppressor oppressed. Mm -hmm. uh, the same story working itself out, and justice needs to happen." But then another person perhaps hears, "Well, actually, what I hear is the state overstepping its bounds in their reaction." Kling also, he's he's not, uh, from my understanding, not a Christian, nor writing as a Christian in, in that book. But I think it's interesting that one of the things immediately that as Christians we should think we should kind of raise some flags. It's a fact is. His, in, in his examples, people say, well, the people I cannot stand are the people who X, Y, Z. And each tribe has this kind of class of people who they, they despise and do not respect. And as Christians, you know, whenever we're talking about politics, as soon as you hear the people I cannot stand, that's somewhere we can't go. We yeah. can't go to, to, to showing spite 
or lack of respect to other parties. Yeah. We can in, engage with the political political differences and the nuance there, but we're never given uh, given the the option of despising another person. Yeah. I think this grid is really helpful too, specifically to talk about what we're in the middle of right now with this coronavirus pandemic. Um, I think that's been one of the harder things for me to to see in the midst of this is how quickly this became divided into divided along political ideologies and people's responses are actually in some ways very closely linked up with Kling's model here. Mm-hmm. And so it's very easy to, you know, for, for people from the progressive language to, to frame, uh, frame the coronavirus and, and the government's response just in terms of safety and justice. And they, they're rightly seeing, wow, look at the populations that are most affected by this. Uh, these are these are like there's groups that are historically vulnerable and they're especially vulnerable even to this. Mm-hmm. And so we need to do everything we can to, to make sure that our response is just for them, not not only for them, just like the justice is pursued on their behalf. People from maybe perhaps a more conservative um, language are, are going to really talk about safety as a whole balanced with financial concerns. Um, raising the question of at what point does does the economic situation begin to uh, become worse than the uh, vir- the the threat of the virus itself? Um, at what point are our institutions irrevocably harmed by the sort of mass shutdowns that we're seeing, so forth? And then someone operating in the libertarian vocabulary uh, is very clearly going to view this in terms of freedom versus coercion, like. Uh, when the shutdowns begin to impede on my ability to, to operate freely, to make my own choices about where I go, who I see, what I do, um, that's going to get inflamed. They're going to see see the government's response as, as kind of gross overstep into coercion. Um, and so that's why you see such passionate responses that really can't, they, they tend to not be able to sync up and, and listen to one another and in in the polarization even see like yeah you might have a good point there that we need to take into consideration they just keep getting pushed further and further into more yeah. extreme versions that really villainize the other and you know, throw isolation in the mix and yeah. me- media echo cha- echo chambers and you have a uh, a pretty potent cocktail there for a uh, national unrest is is particularly as things kind of grind on yeah <sighs> And there's a question that that many people, many Christians are asking uh, around, is this, um, is what what the government has asked churches to do in terms of limiting gatherings, not having gatherings? Uh, I'm sure in our next steps, it's going to be moving towards asking us only to have very small gatherings. Is that uh, sort of overreaching coercion that uh, would justify us breaking the law? Are we in a situation right now where we need to uh, put the kingdom, kingdom, the heavenly kingdom over against an earthly kingdom? I think that's a fair question to ask, and it's something Christians should think through. Uh, but I would say for us right now at, in the Door of Hope family of churches, we, we're, we're just really convinced that the burden of proof needed <laughs> to justify breaking the law is pretty high. Mm-hmm. You know, you would have to ha- be pretty convinced that um, that the information we're being given about the, the danger of allowing these kinds of gatherings is false. Uh, you would have to have, you know, there's, there's all kinds of considerations, but, but for us, I, I think I can speak for myself. Um, 
and the Door of Hope Northeast elder team when I say that we, if we are convinced, and, and we are at the moment, that um, this virus is real and that it's threatening and that big groups spread it, uh, we really view it as an important way we can love our neighbors and our community by not contributing to the spread. And it's painful and it hurts and we're saddened that we can't gather in large groups. Uh, even as we're thankful that we have technology and hopefully soon small gatherings where we're able to do all kinds of things to be together and love and serve one another sacrificially. Um, so church, I just, I like to say church isn't canceled and church isn't shut down at all uh, because we can't gather in a big group. Um, it just shifts our emphasis and shifts where the community takes place, even as we all hopefully long more and more each day for the day we can all be together mm -hmm. and hug one another and share a cup of coffee and take communion together, sing together, all these things that uh, we're told now actually will spread the virus yeah. like pretty dramatically. And I think it's, I think, you know, uh, dovetailing with what Cameron said uh, is, you know, you look at when, when it is the burden of proof justify breaking a law. And we look to the, I think it's really important to look to scripture to see what, when were acts of dis, civil disobedience committed. So in Acts uh, 4, we see Peter and John uh, being forbidden to uh, speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And then Acts 4.19, uh, Peter says, or Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And later on, he says, we must obey God uh, rather, than, rather than man. And the specific context there is they are being forbidden to witness. They are being forbidden to speak about Jesus and to spread the gospel. Mm -hmm. And when you look at Daniel, for instance, uh, the book of Daniel, uh, the acts of civil disobedience there were about literally refusing to worship a, a vast idol. Uh, and or in another, within another context in Daniel, being uh, forbidden to spend time worshiping the Lord. So clearly there, it's, it's about explicit acts of worship, not about, say, uh, a particular instance where we're being called not to assemble for the sake of safety. And I think a really important thing to think here, here is too, like, man, like in, in, in Acts, they were being forbidden to witness, and they said, we, we must witness. That is part of what we are, as, who we are as Christians. And here, this is actually an opportunity to be a witness by doing quote, what is right in the sight of at least perhaps not all men and women in America, but many women, many of our neighbors, honoring, do, living life in a way that honors them and shows like we care about you, we care about, we respect the value of your life. Uh, and not, you know, I am not at all saying that people who would disagree about coronavirus restrictions are not uh, respecting the value of life. But I think this is a place where we can actually be a witness in how yeah. we respond lovingly, wisely, also being, you know, thinking through things, thinking like, okay, we're being called not to assemble. Does this make sense? Does this, does this actually prevent us from fulfilling what uh, the Lord is calling us to long-term as Christians, and it's a it's a temporary measure. So, I think it's these are all the kind of things we gotta we gotta think about because, you know, in in extreme, you know, we could uh, in extreme we could come up with all sorts of justifications for either never disobeying government even when it told us not to, to do something explicitly counter to Scripture, or vice versa to decide that we have the act the right to civilly be quote unquote civilly disobedient at the drop of a hat. Uh, you know, not pay taxes at all because we don't support 
our government's wars overseas or whatever it is. And there's extremes we can fall into, but uh, we want to take that that path of wisdom and really thinking through things prayerfully uh, and in the context of community. Yeah. So hopefully those three languages, uh, just hearing that kind of, for me, the first time I read it, it really brought some clarity to why, you know, I have my own leaning in these things. And I would imagine most people do probably gravitate toward one of these centers of gravity and just gave me a lot of patience for other people. And and now when I'm even reading the news, it's a really helpful grid that makes me stop short of dismissing something the first time I hear it. They actually go, man, where's the good heart and even the the heart behind this, the aspects of it that tie into even my commands as a Christian that maybe I've glossed over uh, because I'm just so quick to view it all through my lens or my language. So I hope that's I hope that's the same for you. That's our second conversation. Our third conversation brings in one more complicating factor into all this, which is uh, kind of the competing binary alternatives for actual political action. And what I mean by that is, is American political life is largely binary. We have a, a system that presently embraces two major parties. And of course, you can uh, vote third party and so forth. But really, the way the things are structured and the precedents and so forth, there, there's really two, two what, what are often viewed as legitimate options. Um, and in, in this environment, it's really tempting, really tempting to try to force Jesus or the church or Christianity as a whole into one of the two binary options, into one of the two camps. In recent history, I mean, we saw this play out quite dramatically with the the religious right movement that emerged in the late 70s. Uh, In in my assessment, that movement was marked by many Christians kind of simplistically, even uncritically, embracing the Republican Party's agenda as its own. And, And many others, though, came to perceive that there were issues that Jesus really seemed to care about that were rejected or ignored by the political or by the Republican Party, which later resulted in significant backlash inside and outside the church. Conversely, it, it seems right now that among younger Christians, especially in a place like Portland, there's a present trend towards swinging the pendulum the other way. So like the emergence of something like a religious left, where they're sort of uncritically embracing the Democratic Party's platform, uh, saying, you know, there are things the Democratic Party is for that as followers of Jesus, we need to be for. But at the expense of really robust and nuanced faithfulness to Jesus in lots of other ways as well. And so in the very nature of our political system with two big options, nearly any act of voting, or maybe even of not voting, will involve some kind of compromise on some number of issues. That's a hard reality to sit with. And, and I don't know if, if you've thought about that before, but, but I, I think it's true. I think voting in a two-party system where neither party is fully going to be lined up with the values and purposes of Jesus in, entails some kind of compromise on some number of issues. And we should, we should also probably clarify within that, like as, even as you're saying that voting or not voting entails compromise of some sort. You know, we're not necessarily saying that you are... When we use the word phrase compromise, we aren't even necessarily saying that if you vote or do not vote, whatever you do, you have blood on your hands. We aren't we aren't saying no, compromise, no, no, no. and that's it. But we are saying there is a sense of of compromise in the sense of like, oh, we're not actually you're not actually getting all you would hope for. Yes, or not even exactly. Like the, the, and and the nature of each party is that there's 
things packaged in with each party that that jar with Christianity. Yeah. Uh, or at least it jar, would, you know, I think it can be can be very clearly argued that would jar with Christianity in one way or the other. And there's other things which are packaged in, which I think I think is one of the things that's so tough is that the things that have gotten packaged in with one part or the other, people try to justify scripturally, which, yeah, you could kind of go either way on it. I mean, you know, unfettered free market capitalism is is like a very specific to a very specific context and i think you can make arguments from scripture for or against or, or whatever i'm not interested in getting into that but people can kind of uh, use uh i guess the language use it baptize it with a language they use about it as if it were kind of uh in and of itself a divinely sanctioned right yeah and that if you question it you're it's akin to questioning yeah like it's God. and that it's sort of obviously a Christian, <laughs> yeah. a Christian economic understanding. Yeah, um, yeah, and could, not to say that you can't have conversation about that. Of but course, we got to be wise about what we, you know, what we're actually saying is clearly scriptural and what is not clearly scriptural. So it, yeah, and it raises the question: like, is there a third way outside of the binary to engage in this political environment? Like, one that follows the example of Jesus that refuses easy categorization. So remember, we've mentioned this before, but Jesus, he refused, he condemned those who wanted to incite violent political revolution in his name, but he also refused to fully cooperate with the present political corruption. I think that Mark story illustrates this really well. He submitted to earthly governments and he resisted them when they overreached. He never compromised his commitment to God's kingdom in the face of any earthly one. And so again, this is not necessarily to say a Christian should never repote, should never vote Democrat or Republican, and and it's not necessarily to advocate for or against voting for third parties either, or, or, or not voting. This is simply a call to to in our attitude, in our perspective, and our heart's longings to be kingdom first in our politics, which is really just one one part of being a kingdom first person, or having a kingdom first life or identity. Mm. That will that will likely confound a world of polar extremes and tidy categories, mm. um, and I just love this illustration. Like remember Jesus, who within his inner core of disciples, he embraced both Simon the Zealot, and, and if you don't know much about the Zealots, they were a group who really did want to overthrow Rome's rule over Israel. They were the ones who were going to take up the sword and overthrow the Roman oppressors. So he has this guy. And he has Matthew, the tax collector, the, the writer of the gospel, who actively worked against the Jewish people on behalf of their Roman overlords in taxing them. Both of these guys were in his inner circle of 12. And I just want you to imagine for a second, like, what that would have looked like if the two of them had to be both discipled toward love for one another and toward greater faithfulness in their thinking and in their action to Jesus's values. To me, that, that's really an inspiring thought, actually, that you could have these two people on opposite sides of the political spectrum of Jesus's day come together, submit themselves to the king, and let themselves be shaped and sharpened by him over time, and even to learn to love one another yep. in the same inner band of disciples. Yep. And I, gosh, I know this is your heart, it's my heart, that our churches, Door of Hope Northeast and Southeast, the churches of the globe, um, our community groups even would be similar places like where people from various backgrounds who, who speak different political languages, who, 
who've been fired up about different things politically could come together and find their deepest hopes and goals progressively more and more oriented around Jesus, Mm -hmm. shaped to be more and more like him. Again, we don't know, (laughs) we don't want to even pretend to know what the answer is in terms of how you vote or how you view a particular issue right now. Um, But on the whole, that we would all be on this journey together with him, daily learning to submit each part and each passion of ourselves to what Jesus is after. Absolutely. And as we're heading into uh, 2020 election season, which is probably going to be, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the weirdest election season (laughs) in American history, (laughs) at least in terms of how it's going to play out in terms of debates and voting and all that kind of stuff. I think it's really important that we think about uh, our church and community groups. You know, I can, I recall specifically at a, when I was at another church when I was living elsewhere uh, coming in the day after the election the 2016 election and the the weird feeling in the room this sense of heaviness this sense of great lamentation for some but knowing that uh, at least one other person there was like uh, you know was was not in, 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 in lamentation per se but it was also very you know sensitive in, to people's feelings at the point but it was just kind of the sense of navigating this extremely strange moment in an an election that was so fraught and so just charged with charged with all these kind of dark undercurrents in our culture whether that's just polarization in general or you know the way that there were things tinged on you know racial issues like uh, racial injustice all these kind of like just felt like a whole cocktail of a whole bunch of of pain in our country very much so I think one thing that it, it behooves us to to think about now is how we navigate the 2020 election in such a way that anybody who walks into our community group is welcome, regardless mm-hmm. of their political background, their political past, their political kind of their gut orientation. Like you were saying about um, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, is that these two these two individuals from greatly different uh, differing political perspectives were able to meet in following Jesus together. And I think um, regardless of our political perspective or just kind of our, our gut alignments, we have to look at the, the narrative in media and in our culture in general is a kind of a salvation narrative when it comes or comes to politics. It's, you know, my gal, guy or my, my girl is going to get into the White House and that is going to fix things. And that is our hope. Because for many people, political power is kind of their, their their ultimate hope in the world. Sure. But as Christians, we gotta we have to resist that because that is not the way of Jesus. Jesus is our hope. American America is not our hope. American democracy is not our hope. Uh, any kind of you you line up any kind of list of political goals, many of which are laudable and say like absolutely, but those are not our ultimate hope. It's Jesus, and we want to have communities. Uh, we want our church to be a community in general, but also we want uh, community groups, for instance, to be places where people can can be welcomed in and realigned uh, around who Jesus is and joined together around who Jesus is. And, you know, I think in the process, as we're meeting with people who have uh, kind of political poles that are different than us, we are likely going to be changed. We're going to become more sensitive to others kind of uh, the needs and the fears and the hopes of others. And it's going to, I think it'll probably soften a lot of hard edges. And there are other convictions that we will duly arrive at together and be like, yeah, that's, 
that's true that you know such and such that is unjust or such and such that is just that should happen but in any case we just want to be a place where the spirit is able to work in our hearts as we love one another and that's you know that's what it keeps coming back to is focusing on jesus and loving one another and our doctrine of sanctification also gives us encouragement that though this month um we can be certain that we have areas where we are allowing certain idolatries to overtake or overstep what should be more fundamental commitments to Jesus. Over time, through walking with him in community, through spending time with him, uh, through allowing him to shape us, uh, we're going to progressively lay down more and more of those idols and more and more of those assumptions, more and more of those things that are intention with Jesus and uh, allow the fruit of the spirit, allow his character and his life to flow out of us more so and more so. That gives me a lot of hope and encouragement as someone who I, I feel like I'm kind of fumbling my way through politics <laughs> and my, and my political yeah. responsibility as a Christian. But I know that I will be more sensitive to the spirit, hopefully next month, six months later, a year later, 10 years later, 30 years later than I am now. And so will the people that we know that we currently disagree with who um, are trying to work this out as well, if they are truly in Christ and indwelt by his spirit. And that's not to say, again, that I know what that's going to look like. I think I'd be really arrogant to say I know what a sanctified politics looks like in every case, mm -hmm. but I know that he is going to be sanctifying us. And that's a really reassuring thought. Yeah. And it's it interesting that, I mean, there is, so in, in a sense, there is a particular kind of progressive vision, which we are all about as Christians. And it's progressing towards more and more who Jesus is and yeah. drawing closer to him. Not Christ towards, formed in you. Yep. Yeah. Not to a man-made vision of flourishing or just kind of a, a set of principles or a set of, you know, uh, particular principles from the past or the future, but it's specifically around Jesus, the person of who he is. What, one other thing I would, I would also say that I think is worth keeping in mind in these kind of conversations is that as Christians, you know, we, we, you know you've talked about resisting that, that kind of binary orientation, feeling like it has to be left or it has to be right. You have to be, uh, if you take this stand on one thing, that means you have to take these other corresponding stands, kind of go down the ballot and that, and as Christians, we should not be afraid to advocate for one, one belief or another, whether that's the image of God in somebody who's an immigrant or whether that's talking about the brutal, like the, the wrongness, the fundamental wrongness of racial injustice or let's say a, a Christian vision of sexuality. We should not be afraid of standing for those things as Christians, but we should resist that meaning we get buttonholed politically into a particular framework that aligns us because we can we can take stands on things that kind of mix and match all over the kind of political spectrum. that confuse our yeah. friends yeah and our family members yeah and hopefully disarm yeah. hopefully that there's like a, a, a freedom in that but i think that that is something that is freeing in general to know that i do not, i'm not beholden to american kind of a particular vision of 21st century classification politically yeah oh, that's a great point man well we should probably end there mm -hmm. huh Thank you so much for listening. If you've, if you've made it with us through the end, we just always want to end the same way we started, which is by acknowledging, again, we don't pretend to have all the answers. Uh, we don't even pretend that this is the most clear or efficient way to even introduce these ideas. But we desperately hope it's helpful. Um, if you're interested in learning more, we've got a document that you can get uh, links to on the Door of Hope website. 
that has lots of additional resources from articles and podcasts all the way up to full books that we've found helpful that we think might encourage you and give you uh, just just more um, good food for thought as you try to be kingdom first, Jesus first in your discipleship to Jesus as it relates to engaging with politics. We're thankful for all of you listening to this and we'll be praying for you, particularly as we kind of keep going through this strange time we're currently in and the coming election. And, you know, if you have any questions or issues with anything I said, you really want to take me to task, uh, this is Pip speaking, uh, just email Cameron. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's a, a clean solution right there. I am more than happy to <laughs> field your criticisms of Pip and slander him with you. Yeah, heartily agree. <laughs> <laughs> no, we do appreciate you listening. Um, do reach out if you have more you want to process. Um, and let's try to honor Jesus in this upcoming year. With your spirit in fire, move, Lord, come and change our desires.